Daniel chapter 12, and we'll read the whole thing starting at verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his hand and his, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allocated inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Should be working now. Yes, I should. Uh, so, final sermon in Daniel, uh, but we are not looking in detail at the chapter, we're looking at a big theme. Uh, and the, the fact that we're not looking at the detail of the factor means that for those of you in the congregation who, who might be a bit like my wife, who are a bit sick of looking at dates and times and timelines and the weird history of the 5th to the 1st century BC, uh, you'll be relieved this morning. But if you did want to know or do want to know what the 1290 days and the 1335 days are in chapter 12 verses 11 and 12, because they do kind of stick out to you, you might, you might find an answer or an exploration of that in your small groups this week or if I have time afterwards you can come ask me. And if you've got a question about what is that abomination that causes desolation, then I'd say just listen to the sermon uh, on Daniel chapter 8 because we cover that uh, in some detail there. So, not looking at the fine details, sorry to disappoint or hooray, uh, we're looking at a theme. What is the theme? Well, you will have to wait a moment because I want to start this morning with a question uh, but this isn't a rhetorical preacher question where I ask something and you don't say something back, a bit like Jason, Jason and Hannah, I want some feedback. So, here's my question uh, and I want you to put your hand up if you think you know the answer to the question. Here it is. I'm going to list a bunch of films and the question is, what do these films have in common? Okay? Here are the films. The Eternals, Dune, Free Guy, Venom, Colon, 
Let There Be Carnage, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and Cruella. All right, that's an eclectic mix, isn't it? Hands up if you think you know the common element amongst these films. Okay, Lulu, Laura, what do you think the common element is? They're all, <laughs> you know what, that's probably true. I haven't checked that, but there's a good chance that's true. They kind of seem to own the world at the moment. Uh, anyone else? Yes, at the back. They're all about supernatural stuff. You know what, that could be true as well, I actually. <laughs> I'm just going to stop asking these questions. Okay, Daniel, last one. They're released this year. No, that is true though. That is the one that I did know. Well done, Daniel, that is true. But no, here's, here's the commonality amongst those various other things. <laughs> really should have prepped this better. <clears throat> here's what I wanted you to guess. Uh, that would have been hard to because some of them haven't been released yet. But according to Google, they... And Google's always right, but on this one, it probably is right. This is a cracking start to a sermon, isn't it? Filling you with confidence. According to Google... Uh, none of these have opening credits. They're all 2021 films. None of them have opening credits. Apparently, that kind of 90 seconds of text is just too much for us today. Contrast that with the masterpiece that was the 1968 film by Sergio Leone, Once Upon a Time in the West, where the opening credits went for 14 minutes. Or, or, or kind of less extravagantly, just last week, uh, one of the things that my um, kiddies did is they watched, because Abby's reading it, my eldest, we, we, we watched Pinocchio. Two things that struck us about that, one is there's absolutely nothing like the book, so it wasn't helpful at all, no hack there, but two, the, the opening credits did feel like they went on forever and they were just really boring. And then we watched Dumbo and exactly the same thing, really boring opening credits going on forever. And so, why, why has there been this change in 2021? Why have we dropped the credit? Is it, credits? Is it just in 2021 we realise that they kind of can be a bit boring? Well, no, actually, the length of opening credits has been, well, decreasing, shrinking over the last 40 or so years. And why is that? Well, I think it relates to our cultural aversion, our allergy to delay of any sort. We just can't wait. For many, including myself, patience is a long, dead virtue. We want it now. We live in an epoch, in an era marked by the instant. And there's a kind of history behind that that's not particularly hard to track, actually, driven by scientific advancement and the Industrial Revolution, where once things could took days, weeks or months, very quickly took seconds, minutes, hours. Think about traversing great distances. What took a ship three months now takes a plane 13 hours. What would take three hours walking now takes three minutes in the car. What took 30 minutes to cook now takes 30 seconds in the microwave. The world has changed and we have not remained unchanged. Our habits, our behaviours and expectations have been rewired. We have an expectation of near instantaneous result. And I think this addiction to the instant has far wider reaching, far deeper consequences than merely having shorter opening credits. 
think of our kind of public square today. I think part of the reason why we have such little healthy public debate is that left and right or centre or whatever kind of area we find ourselves, we're so unwilling to patiently listen to the other side, let alone take the time to actually understand their arguments. If it don't tweet, it won't compete as an idea. Or how can we hope to grow in our knowledge and understanding as a culture if we live on bite-sized morsels of information? never stopping to chew on the big issues, to read at length on the issues that detain us in our day. Not only that, but that desire for kind of instant response and instant satisfaction means we live frantic, frenetic, adrenaline-fueled, radically imbalanced lives. Is it any wonder that the younger generation who live on a diet of TikTok or Netflix watched at twice speed or endless Instagram feeds... Is it end of wonder that they feel anxious, that they feel rootless? And of course, the, 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 the dark edge to our culture of addiction to the instant is seen in its pornification. Like everything else, sexual pleasure must be mass-produced, commodified for instant consumption. Or you see the tyranny of the instance even when it comes to our approach to health care. Uh, euthanasia or assisted dying. You see, the idea that prolonged suffering should be stopped at the highest price, that people need immediate relief now, is, seems to be almost universally accepted. And this addiction to the instant also has dire implications on our spiritual lives. Because Deep forming habits like Bible reading and prayer, they require patience, don't they? In fact, they only truly repay careful and time-consuming commitments. See, a verse a day does not keep the devil at bay. And I wonder, who of us in this room doesn't suffer in that department, in those two bread and butter Christian practices of Bible reading and prayer. But it's not just Bible reading and prayer. It's not hard to make people feel guilty about that, and probably has never been hard from a pulpit to make people feel guilty about that. It's far more wide-reaching still, because our instant orientation means that many in our church, many in our church lack something that has always been integral, foundational, fundamental to Christian life, which is perseverance, resilience and endurance. Far too many of us treat our faith like a Netflix subscription. Don't like what's offered? Cancel it tomorrow. And have a look in your own lives. Think about how many friends, family members, churchgoers that you knew that have left the church. No doubt citing all sorts of different reasons, but deep down because it just got too hard. Because temptation was just too unavoidable, because social pressure to conform was far too strong. Uh, 
The Christian faith has always demanded an endurance, resilience and perseverance that we who live in epoch instant, we struggle with perhaps more than any other generation before us. And turning now to our man Daniel, it is precisely this trait, perseverance under pressure, faithfulness under temptation, resilience in the face of threat that Daniel models for us throughout the 12 chapters of his book. And because it's something that Daniel has in abundance, because it's something that perhaps we lack, I thought it'd be really helpful to focus on that this morning. So that's our topic, Daniel's faithful endurance. I'm going to give you two points. Point number one, or step one, is we are going to look a little for a little bit, this will be the shorter part of it, take a little window into that faithful endurance of Daniel. And then step two, point two, we're going to ask, what is the key to Daniel's endurance? And then I promise as we explore two, we will return to chapter 12. So one, looking at his faithful endurance. And as you step back, you realise that actually it's a lifetime's worth of faithful endurance. It's, it's, kind of, it's not there on the pages, but, but it must be the case that Daniel was forcibly removed from his hometown, his city Jerusalem, as probably a young boy, and then no doubt traumatised and in terror for his life, is, is captured and dragged a thousand kilometres to a foreign city, Babylon, And there he spends 70 more years of his life at least. In fact, he never returns home to what he refers to so affectionately as the beautiful land. Never, never returns home once in his 70 years of exile. And then think about, as you zoom into those 70 years, what did he do? Well, he faithfully served foreign kings. He outlasted four, probably six, because two didn't rule for long enough to reach the pages of the Bible, outlasted six kings and then two empires in his service. A man who faithfully served his captors and his tormentors. Well, that's kind of the zoom out. What, What about as we zoom in? You see, as you peer down the microscope at Daniel's life, a man of deep, abiding integrity, faithfully pursuing God in suffering and strife. Think about just the first chapter, where where we see Daniel forsaking the lavish food and wine of the king's table, the best food in all of Babylon, which was the superpower of the day, the best of the best. He ignores that, spurns that, and lives on water and vegetables. And, you know, we actually, to this day, don't actually quite know why he did that. It seems to be most likely that he did it so that he could stand apart and distinct from his pagan colleagues. I mean, how how easy would it have been for Daniel just to kind of cave in and eat what everyone else in the court of Nebuchadnezzar is eating? I mean, picture yourself there. You've got that medium-rare Wagyu sizzling before you. Then the bouquet of that vintage Cab Merlot wafts across the table. 
and you're just smashing the lentils in water. And then perhaps more bleakly in chapter 3, the focus isn't so much on Daniel at this point, but on his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Men that defy the king's command that the statue should be worshipped against immense pressure, the threat of death, and yet they refuse to bow and indeed they end up being cast into that fiery furnace. And then in chapters 4 and 5, I think we often kind of don't put ourselves in Daniel's shoes, but if we did, you'd see that he has a horrendous task. He has to rebuke the most powerful man in the world, twice, Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar. And he doesn't do like what you and I do, doesn't do a sneaky compliment sandwich, you're doing a great job, but there's this idolatry, but you're doing a great job. No, he kind of two barrels blasts them. These men commanded the greatest army the world had ever seen. With a nod of their head, they could have had Daniel killed, and yet he does it. And then most famously, in chapter 6, the edict goes out that if you pray to anyone but the king, you'll be tossed to the lions. You see, Daniel doesn't do what I do, is I probably would have stopped praying, or at the very least what I would have done is I would have closed my windows and prayed. Or, or, or perhaps I would have just prayed in my head as I washed the wheels of my chariot. No, window open, he prays to God and faces the consequences. Courage, conviction, resilience. But here's the really interesting thing about the book of Daniel, is actually, it really doesn't talk at all about his suffering in the first six chapters. He, he almost seems to have like a disregard for his circumstances. It's chapters 7 to 12, his apocalyptic visions, where you hear the man suffering as he sees the fate of his people. First vision, chapter 7, verse 28, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Second vision, chapter 8, evokes a similar response. Third vision, chapter 9, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. You see, whether it be in the public square or in his own mind, in his walk with God, Daniel endures an incredible amount of suffering and pressure. He could have been forgiven at any point in my mind for throwing in the towel, grumbling, complaining, and yet he never once does any of that in all of the 12 chapters. And in his most horrific vision, which is last week's vision, chapter 11, where he sees the plight of his people 500 years, half a millennium of them being squashed like a bug, torn apart by kingdoms north and south, becoming a doormat for the tyrants of the world. He could have at any point in that called into question the goodness, the kindness, the faithfulness of God. And yet he never once does that. You see, contrast Daniel with me for a moment. Stubbed toe, Jammed photocopier, internet dropout, just slow internet, long queue, long night with a sick, sick kid. Why God? Why me? 
I mean, Daniel's not a robot, right? He feels the weight of it. There's sackcloth and ashes. There's fasting for weeks on end. But he never threatens, never accuses, never wavers. And so how? How does he do it? What's Daniel's secret? That see him persevere in circumstances where, if we're honest, we might well have failed and dropped out. Or is it that Daniel is just made of sterner stuff than your eye? He has more willpower, more spiritual stamina. Well, yeah, that's probably true, let's be honest. He's one of the greats of the faith. But, but, but where does that stamina, where does that metal, where does the willpower come from? Well, I think, I think that you get the answer in the last few verses of the book. So, let me very quickly set the scene. So, chapter 12, end of the vision, and then Daniel's having a kind of Q&A amongst three angels. It kind of gets confusing where the angels are and who's who. Important point, though, what we need to know is that he, at the end, in verse 8, he asks for clarification about the vision. I, that's Daniel, I heard, but I did not understand. So, I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And he, the angel, for what it's worth, probably Gabriel, says, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. And I want to focus on those three words, go your way, because Contrary to expectation, perhaps, I think that that actually gives us the secret to Daniel's resilience. Who'd be right to be confused at this point? How so? Well, first of all, I think the way that we kind of naturally read these words in English really doesn't help us at all. Because, you see, we read go your way as a kind of dismissal, don't we? As in kind of jog on, Daniel, vision and question time now over. But that's not what's actually going on there. Those words, go your way, are actually one word in Hebrew. Hebrew was the original language this book was written in, or at least parts of this book were written in. And the Hebrew word that we then use three English words to translate is the Hebrew word halak, or halak, uh, which means walk. It's, in fact, it's one of the first words you learn in Hebrew, and it's easy to remember because it's hard luck when you walk, halak. Just a little hack for how I passed Hebrew. And so, the, the angel here is saying, Daniel, walk or walk on, which again kind of sounds like a bit of a dismissal. What's the point, Matt? Well, I think it's when that word is repeated at the end of the conversation where we get some clarity. So, verse 13, the, the same word pops up. Verse 13, angel to Daniel, as for you, go your way till the end. Literally, as for you, walk till the end. And of course, he's not saying literally keep on walking until you die or dismissed and go die in a ditch or somewhere. No, he's using walk as the rest of the Bible often uses walk. In fact, it's the most common metaphor employed in Scripture to describe the faithful Christian or Israelite life. He's saying keep going, keep enduring, keep walking faithfully, Daniel, until the end. 
And now kind of getting to our, our question, what is it that the angel thinks will compel Daniel to persist in his perseverance and his resilience? As for you, go on until the end, you will rest and then at the end of your days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Here it is, the angel thinks... And who are we to disagree? The angel thinks the thing that will compel, propel and drive Daniel to continue pursuing God are the promises of God and specifically, unflinchingly, unembarrassingly, His promise of eternal reward. The angel thinks that Daniel's confidence and pursuit of the promises of God will be the thing that sustains him until the end. And just in case you think that this is kind of a quirky read on it, well, let's flip to Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews makes exactly the same point. So, if you want to turn, and, and Eddie gave us a really helpful intro, but I'll just repeat it for the sake of those who might not have been listening. Uh, so, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, one of the last books in the New Testament. And the background here is that the author of Hebrews, called Paul, Paul is going through all the great characters of the Old Testament and he's pointing out, identifying a single unifying trait or characteristic. And it's, it, it, um, here's, you probably will know it if you know chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith for a reason. It's because it's faith, but specifically it's a faith in what? Well, verse 13... All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. What defines the great men and women of the Old Testament is their vision and their pursuit of the eternal city that God has promised. And these great men and women who have been driven, who persevere because of that faith in the promises of God includes Daniel. Skip down to 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Here, here's Daniel, who shut the mouths of lions, and Daniel's three buddies, quenched the fury of the flames, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Underneath it all, what is the thing that drives Daniel? Yes, it's his faith, his belief in God, but particularly, peculiarly, this is saying, his belief in the reward that God offers, his eternal inheritance. It's that that gave him the confidence to stare down kings, face the lions and overcome pressure and temptation. And here's the thing that's, I think, frightening or at least shocking is that 
Daniel is driven by a vision, but a vision that he only has a very, very, very distant picture of. Contrast that with me and you today. We have a very high definition picture of that vision, of that promise, because we live the other side of Jesus and His resurrection. We know what that kingdom and what the king of that kingdom looks like. Daniel didn't. Daniel, like the angels, longed to inquire into such things, but he didn't know. And so, why is it that Daniel has a perseverance that we can but envy? Well, here's my answer, or at least part of an answer to that question, I think. I think it's true that we do, of course, have a much fuller picture than Daniel. But here, and this is where we come back to our introduction, I think an implication, a consequence of our addiction to the instant, means that we are so now wired for immediate gratification that eternal gratification seems too vague, too remote, uh, just kind of too abstract to fixate upon or to live for. You see, Daniel, he's got a really low-resolution vision of, 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 of resurrection and glory and eternity, but what he's done is he's got that low-res picture and he's kind of stuck it in the furniture of his mind, kind of like on every surface. But I think many of us who have a higher resolution picture have shrunk it to such a small size that it's almost like a postage stamp that we've kind of swept under the couch, never to be stumbled upon again. And because it's so small, so insignificant, it, it, can't, it can't compete with the marketplace of 21st century life. That little postage stamp can't possibly do battle with and defeat the overwhelming promises of instant gratification in our glossy world of food, of sex, of wealth and experience. Click the button and it's yours. And if I'm at least partly onto something here, how do we think about how we respond to that? How do we make the vision of eternity of Christ's kingdom so large that we might persevere? Is it perhaps by kind of re-enlarging that picture and putting it on more surfaces of our minds? Or is it by saying no to the promises of instant gratification? Is it get rid of the competitors or blow up the vision? Well, I don't think it's an either-or. I think it's a both-and. And I think the author of Hebrews, as we'll see in a moment, thinks likewise too. You do need to be willing in the power of the Spirit, by God's grace, all that acknowledged, all good comes from Him, 
Nonetheless, you still need to be willing to say no to the pull of the flesh. You need to take seriously what Scripture says about cutting off your hand, about plucking out your eye, about tearing off your ear or severing your limb if that thing is leading you to hell and eternal damnation. You see, some of us here this morning, and I would include myself among this number, we need to torch the leeches of comfort and pleasure that are draining our spiritual vitality. We need to get better at saying no to the things that pull us like a magnet towards the here and now, living with a vision only of the presence. See, Christ clearly teaches, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And many of us here, delight yourself, take up your couch and watch TV. God's creation is good. We're on board with that. There are many wonderful things in this fine city that we can enjoy. We're all on board with that. But I wonder if many like me have become so tempted, so find that so alluring that it kind of sucks our drive to live for Jesus and we just live for the here and now. Hebrews 12 verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We need to be willing to torch the leeches. But of course, that's not nearly enough. Because here's a principle, and it's universal of human nature. We'll only forsake one thing for the sake of something better. We'll only forsake something for the sake of something better. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It doesn't matter what rules you put in place, doesn't matter if you sell all your possessions and live like a hermit on the street, you won't endure, you will not persevere in the faith if you are not singularly transfixed by the majesty and wonder of Jesus. I think many of us need to slow down, need to breathe, need to lift our eyes from the stuff of the here and now and gaze upon Christ. the most tender, kind, merciful, humble, courageous, wise, patient, strong, holy, powerful man that ever lived. The infinite God who became finite, the God who is holy became human, but more than that, for us became soiled, defiled, debased, bearer of vileness, crookedness and evil on that cross. 
and suffered that torturous fate, the weight of eternal damnations on His shoulders, so that we might become sharers in His holiness, partakers, as Peter says, in His divine nature, co-heirs of all things along with Him. We need to have a vision of the blazing holiness and glory of our Lord Jesus. And such a taste for the pleasure and satisfaction that He alone can offer. Such a longing for the void in our hearts to be filled, for the hole in our soul to be stitched by Him. Develop such a yearning to encounter Him clothed in the Scriptures, in worship, in the supper, in fellowship, in conversation, that the fleeting pleasures of the flesh lose their taste and so that the things of the earth go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, we'll only stare down the sword and lion too, if we, like Daniel, know what lies beyond the edge, beyond those teeth, know our heavenly city and know it is far better indeed than whatever this world can offer or that we can imagine. Grow your confidence in that reality and we will not forsake. By His grace, we will endure. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Daniel. We thank You for how he points to Your Son, Christ. We thank You for the man's confidence, for his resilience, for his endurance. Thank You for the living faith and the vibrant hope You gave him, and we pray that that might be true of us too. We pray by Your grace and through Your Spirit, You may grow us, that we may long to taste and see that the Lord is good. That You might give us eyes that see beyond this mortal plane to the things of heaven and to the things of eternity. And that might guide, shape and drive us. In Jesus' name, Amen.